TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to a special edition of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. In an era in which allegations of fake news are rampant, journalists are increasingly under attack, and the media industry is going through unprecedented and unpredictable upheavals in its business model, we felt like we should dig into exactly how the news gets made and who's making it. We know that the press is playing a growing role in shaping public perception of our neighborhoods and cities, which in turn shapes policies that govern everything from the severity of criminal sentences to the conduct of law enforcement to the support we provide to those who come in contact with the criminal justice system. In a special series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing the interviewers and looking at the unique role that the media plays in covering the criminal justice system. In the first of these episodes, we spoke with Carrie Johnson. She's the justice correspondent for the Washington Desk at National Public Radio. She's also worked at the Washington Post and says she's been a reporter at heart since elementary school. She's recently reported on the Department of Justice's oversight of the Shelby County Ju- Juvenile Court and continues to cover that story. Carrie was very generous to sit down with me for a few minutes during a recent trip to Washington. Thank you so much, Carrie Johnson, for uh, agreeing to be on the permanent record here My pleasure. At, and, and for hosting me here at NPR in this beautiful, uh, beautiful building in Washington, D.C. Tell me, you've been at NPR for about, uh, what, seven years now? Seven years now. Before yeah. that, the Washington Post. Uh, did you report on justice issues at the Post as well? I did. For many years of the Post, I covered corporate crime and fraud uh, prosecutions around the country. And then when the Justice Department stopped prosecuting a lot of corporate crime, I moved to cover the Justice Department proper for the Post. And then um, at the start of the Obama administration or a year or so in, I began to work for NPR as its justice correspondent. I see. So, the, so the, the the ceasing of the prosecuting those types of crimes coincided with an administration change. Uh, actually, um, during uh, the George W. Bush administration, after nine um, eleven and the Enron scandal hit, there was a real commitment to cor- prosecuting corporate fraud at the highest levels. And interestingly enough, James Comey was the deputy attorney general, and he launched a task force on corporate fraud. Under his watch, a lot of major prosecutions were brought around the country. And toward the end of, middle to end of the George W. Bush years, some of those cases started to go by the wayside. Got it. What brought you to uh, covering uh, crime, whether it be white or otherwise, white collar or otherwise, what brought you to reporting about crime? So I've always been reporting since I was a kid, since I was a kid in high school covering sports. Where are you from? I'm from the Chicago area, Chicagoland. And I decided I didn't want to cover sports full time because that's actually still a hard life for women reporters. We see now more than ever. Um, So I thought the next best thing was covering law, which is its own form of smash mouth combat from time to time. And Fewer rules sometimes. uh, Actually, that's true. (laughs) Believe it or not. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I attended some law school classes with friends of mine who were in law school. That taught me I didn't want to go to law school, but I wanted to cover the law instead, the next best thing. That was a good decision. (laughs) 
Um, well, so take us through, through the, a day in the life of an NPR reporter. Uh, I imagine that no two are probably very similar, but what does it look like when, when you get to work or when you're headed to work? When does your day start? What, what exactly does a, a correspondent like you do? Sure. One of the biggest changes um, between reporting for newspaper and reporting for radio is that the day can start very, very early. So when I worked at the Washington Post, often I would get to the office by 830 in the morning, which was very early by journalism standards. Now uh, I can start the day at 4 or 5 a.m. with a live hit on Morning Edition. Um, You either come into the newsroom or uh, you get some equipment and you can do your live hit from home because it's not on camera, uh, you can sit in your own house with a cup of coffee and, and your PJs on. Sounds the same to all of us. It sounds the same. So long as there's no fire truck in your neighborhood or a kid crashing around in the kitchen, you're okay. Yeah, that's crazy. So you get that start, and I guess for for you to take the equipment home, you'd have to know the day before, and so sometimes maybe you you're forced to come in. You usually know the day before if you're going to be on that morning. Uh, sometimes in the event, sadly, of a mass shooting overnight, a terrorist attack, or some kind of abnormal political development, they'll call you in the middle of the night and wake you up and tell you you got to come in. What was your most recent experience with that? Um, I've had a number of experiences like that this year, in part because this presidency is so unusual, Mm -hmm. this administration is so unusual, and because it's so heavily litigated, Josh. I mean, from the inauguration onward, from the first travel ban, which came out within a week of the inauguration, and the litigation that uh, started through that weekend and lasted for months and months up into this day, um, uh, courts are ruling over the weekend on TROs and preliminary injunctions and the like, and reporters have to be on watch and be able to explain that in a moment's notice. And do you have help with that? Because sometimes those rulings, they just show up. And and who's helping you watch for those things and and know that they're happening? We do have a good team that works here 24-7 in shifts. So there are digital news editors, website editors, and radio producers who are working all night long. uh, So they can be in touch via email or phone if there's a development. We also have, fortunately, a number of really sophisticated staffers, particularly on the healthcare and science side for some of the ACA, Affordable Care Act related litigation, some of the litigation over contraceptives. Those science desk folks handle that in concert with political and legal reporters here. So I'm not on my own by any means. So I, I imagine this may have changed too over the last year, but how often do you get out in the field out to talk to people and interview people uh, about stories? You know, since, um, about March, no, I, since rather, I should say about May of last year of 2016, things sort of went by the wayside. We had a number of developments. We had the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, mm-hmm. which was a weeks long story. We had the tarmac meeting between then Attorney General Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton, which then morphed into a Hillary Clinton interview by the FBI, which then morphed into the closing of the Hillary Clinton investigation and then the reopening of the Hillary Clinton investigation and then the election. So since then, I've barely been able to get out of Washington. That's pretty normal for the start of a new administration, especially covering the Justice Department. There's just a lot of policy change. Um, But this one is unusual because sometimes the policy changes come on Saturday or Sunday mornings, early in the morning or late at night via a tweet from President Trump, which maybe the Justice Department doesn't even know about. And they're forced to jump into action. And so are people like me trying to understand what has happened exactly and what it means. Wow. And so is that 
it's not uh, administration wide that these things are happening in off hours. It's really driven by the president's decision to put something on Twitter. Absolutely. With respect to the travel ban, with respect to um, what he's described as a ban on transgender people in the military, which is still right. uncertain right. what which that's going no to be. Basis or no, no explanation. Yeah. And for instance, Josh, there's one hour a week when I go to the gym, just one hour. It's very sad, <laughs> but I try to make that one hour on Wednesday mornings. And I had prepared a story for the announcement on President Trump's FBI pick. And during that one hour on a Wednesday morning, I was in the gym. President Trump, and it later came out, his own senior staff didn't know. He announced that Christopher Ray was his pick for the FBI director. And so that <laughs> ended your workout. That huh? upended, that ended my workout and caused me to run home out of breath and try to get on right. the air in the next half hour. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about policy shift, too, because that, that has happened in this administration. I don't need to ask you about that. But uh, but also, I mean, even we're, as we record this today, there's been a ton of energy from national press and even I'm seeing local stories because I'm from Tennessee about Senator Bob Corker and the president going back and forth on Twitter. Um, that's a thing, right? Like we have used up a, a morning just a today as an example on this matter that when we went to bed last night, we had no idea we would be reporting on it. Um, how big of a thing is that? And, and can you describe it from your perch here on the national news scene? Well, we have debates all the time about how to cover developments on a day-to-day basis. Is every tweet by the president, every tweet storm newsworthy? Does everything require a fact check? If it requires a fact check, can it be done a couple of days from now as opposed to today? We all in this business have limited resources and we have to shepherd them wisely. And those are conversations we have day by day, hour by hour. The thing here at NPR that we're committed to, um, particularly on the politics in Washington desk where I work, is to not lose sight of what's really important. And so there is a stream of coverage about name-calling or fact-checking statements about crime and um, crime statistics, which we've been engaged in for over a year now throughout the campaign and up to this year. But we also want to be aware of when hey, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is announcing a change and maybe not announcing a change. We heard from this group, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which advocates for prisoners and their families, that some halfway house situations were going on. Come to find uh, the Bureau of Prisons quietly ended contracts with 16 halfway houses, which is really impacting um, some people's release dates and how many, how much time they're going to spend in transition. Those are really important stories that the right. national press needs to cover, and we need to make time to cover those things here at NPR, even if uh, there's litigation going on and political infighting. Yeah, I read that story, and, I, and it actually I did wonder where it came from. Did that come through a more traditional press release or, as you said, contact from families for uh, against mandatory minimums? Yeah, some folks there uh, had gotten in touch with me and said, we're noticing something very strange going on. And they have such um, broad networks inside prisons. They have so many prisoners with whom they're in touch that, as usual, the best stories bubble up from the community that's affected, not from some marble palace in Washington. And I've been talking about that very thing with some advocates while I've been here in D.C. And and so we wanted to ask you, all of us, what what works from advocacy groups like that uh, to get your attention? I mean, I think you you just referenced it, but um, what still works even amidst all this seeming chaos? What are you looking for as a journalist? And and as a follow-up, when you find it, because in the story you're referencing, uh, you you talked to a son, the son of a man who is, is... 
released from prison has been delayed. Um, and so as a follow-up question, how do you sort of balance the need to get that story out, the importance that you just shared with us, and the, um, uh, the risk that you – uh, tokenize that person and exploit that story, which is a human story, which is tragic. So I gave you a lot there, but yeah, sure. So, um, you know, having done this for a while, when things are quiet, I try to go out and meet with interest groups from all sides of the aisle, uh, not just people in the government, but people outside the government. And you develop relationships with folks, a, a trust level and a sense of their judgment. And when I hear from some of those people that something's going on, I may not be able to get to it right away, but it's something that interests me. Here at NPR, we're committed to telling stories in Washington and about Washington, but uh, the best radio stories and the best print newspaper stories too come through the lives of people. So for me to get some time on the air, on one of NPR's flagship shows, I usually need to have the voice of a human being right. who's been touched by it. And because it's so hard to interview people inside, um, both because they have a fear of retaliation if they talk, and because when you interview a federal prisoner, uh, you know, there's that voice that comes on in the course of the call, sometimes several times saying, you are speaking with an inmate, and it kind of pollutes the audio. Yeah. So it's usually better and more comfortable to interview somebody outside who can speak for that inmate right right and and um and that was that was a, a great story so talk about the your um coverage of the department of justice um has your day-to-day -day interaction with the department of justice changed in this current administration you know um then FBI Director James Comey used to have quarterly briefings with reporters. No cameras or audio were allowed, but we could sit down and bring a notebook and ask him a whole bunch of questions. Sometimes he'd answer, sometimes he didn't. Uh, the new FBI director who uh, has replaced Comey has not yet had one of those pen and pad briefings with us. You know, he's he's getting his sea legs. He's starting to do uh, more public appearances, but most of them don't involve a Q&A. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein don't do a lot of those Q&As either. Sometimes in the course of a big announcement about a criminal matter, they'll take a couple questions at the end. But uh, those folks are not super accessible to uh, the uh, you know group of reporters who cover them on a regular basis. Have you ever had a one-on-one -on -one with, with an Attorney General, any of them? Yes, I um, have traveled with um, former Attorney General Mukasey, who was George W. Bush's last AG, with Eric Holder, and with Loretta Lynch, who were the Obama Attorneys General, and got uh, standalone interviews with each of them. We have some interview requests out for Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein. They haven't accepted those requests as of yet. What's that like, sitting down with the sitting Attorney General? I mean, just take us through the, even the blocking of that, like rooms and, and people present and things like that. Sure. So um, I think it would be a lot more um, complicated were I to bring in a whole bunch of cameras and lighting and such. Uh, in that way, I'm a little bit lucky. Um, when I interviewed uh, Judge Mukasey, I was still with the Washington Post, so it just involved a pen and a paper and, and me. Um, Holter, I've, Eric Holter, I've interviewed both for uh, newspapers and for radio. To be honest, I uh, had covered him on and off for many years. And it took some getting used to when I stuck a big microphone in his face with a big fuzzy cover on it. Like It's a little off-putting. And you're you know? holding that microphone. I'm holding it, or sometimes because I want to be able to think of the question and, and respond in the moment, uh, I'll bring a producer with me in that instance to hold the mic and make sure the levels are good. So I don't have to worry about that while I'm 
talking to somebody. Um, Sometimes I do it myself, though. The problem with that is uh, uh, on one occasion I I interviewed Holder in Arkansas in the Bill Clinton uh, Library Museum. And Eric Holder is over six feet tall, and I am about five feet tall. (laughs) So it was a little hard to reach up. I think he was quite kind in in terms of looking down. But you're standing up interviewing him. Standing up. And uh, former FBI Director James Comey is a lot taller than Eric Holder. And he was even more of a challenge to interview face-to-face. Wow. Right. Um, have you ever interviewed a president or a head of state? No, I've not interviewed a president. Um, I, I've covered some events where President Obama or um, then Vice President Biden were present at the Justice Department or elsewhere, but n- never did a one-on-one. So um, in the last year, I know we just talked a little bit about a story that does not involve um, directly uh, the current administration, Department of Justice. But do you, um, you know, Jeff Sessions came to Memphis, uh, sort of famously for us at least, in um, uh, early summer. And and his presence there um, meant something very specific to our community, especially because his narrative on crime and his uh, response to that is uh, very much in keeping with some of our local leadership. Um, and so that's an example from Memphis. But do you uh, do you have stories or have you experienced something similar as you've reported on local or statewide stories over the last year where, um, you know, ele- we always say elections matter. Uh, have you have you seen that? And, and can you give an example? I've lived in Washington for 21 years, which is shocking for me to say, since I thought I would be here for six months and then go back to Chicago and live my life. Um, I'm a firm believer that elections have consequences and priorities do change based on who's been elected. Uh, For instance, um, over the years, I've covered many different administrations and their handling of civil rights has shifted dramatically depending on who's in power, especially if um, both chambers of Congress are also the same party in power as the president. So there are a whole host of issues in which um, presidents have the right to uh, have their nominees in charge at the Justice Department and the FBI so long as those people are qualified according to the Senate and, and you know, the ABA, for instance. Um, and those folks are have a right to install whatever priorities they want um, given the Constitution, within the boundaries of the Constitution. Um, this is a little bit different because... Um, Nobody, including members of the Trump campaign, expected President Trump to win. Then within a short time after the election, the um, presidential transition, which was led by Chris Christie, changed hands to Mike Pence. And so they were very slow in getting off the ground in terms of um, selecting sub-cabinet type officials. And in fact, we still only have four or five Senate-confirmed people in charge at the Justice Department. And out of how many should, should there be? Uh, well, including all the U.S. attorneys, hundreds, right? Right. So there, there are a lot of open posts out there. And this is outside of your beat, but I mean that is that's ahead of State Department, for instance. The State Department, as I understand it, is even thinner than that. I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Um, so going forward uh, in in 2018, what do you see as, as some of the big stories you'll you'll be covering um, for the Justice Department? Well, uh, front and center, although maybe not always on the air, is what is happening with Special Counsel Robert Mueller, his investigation into Russian interference in last year's election, the 2016 election, whether anybody connected to the Trump campaign was involved, and um, associated allegations against people like Paul Manafort. And sure. Retired General Mike Flynn. 
that's a big story in Washington and beyond. And, and what, what's the next step on that story? Like, how do you, you'll be at the gym and what will, what will happen? What will the, the announcement be, do you think? I think um, someday sooner rather than later, um, there may be a public charging document yeah. um, in, in against somebody involved in that matter. Yeah. And then we take it to a new level. The announcement or the confirmation that there are active grand juries um, was treated as a nuclear development in this investigation, even though, um, in, in my experience, it should not have been. I mean, the notion that That's Bob Mueller was appointed means right. he's going to be investigating, right. and most of these folks need grand juries or at least enlist them to help with the investigation. Yeah. What else uh, outside of, of that story? Anything else you're waiting for or looking forward to? Uh, I think that um, there's a lot more to do with respect to civil rights. Um, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Sessions, has been very committed to prosecuting individual Right. Offenses in the civil rights area, um, hate crimes, and um, and shifting away from these consent decrees and and things like that, right? Yes, That's related. Absolutely, and so some of those consent decrees are going to come to an end, and we're going to see what has happened in terms of real change in those communities, if any. He spoke to the International Association of Chiefs of Police recently, and you covered that. What did you? What did we learn anything new from the Attorney General? At well, that? He, he more or less told the IACP that President Trump and he had filled a camp, fulfilled a campaign promise that, in his eyes, um, local law enforcement was uh, laudable. Uh, well-respected partner of, of the U.S. Justice Department, and he literally said, we've got your back. So uh, Sessions early on, and, and so did President Trump in the course of last year's campaign, say, we don't want to be investigating patterns of discrimination in local police forces. We don't think that's our job. And very early on, with respect to Baltimore and Chicago, this administration signaled those days were over. Right. Right. So his messaging recently has been consistent with the messaging during the campaign. Absolutely consistent. The question is um, now, OK, you've got these civil rights lawyers. What are you going to have them doing? Right. And the answer may be um, prosecuting individual instances of hate, federal hate crimes. And another answer might be um, protesting or prosecuting what they see um, as evidence of religious discrimination. Uh, litigating on behalf of certain people's religious freedoms. Right, right. Wow. Um, has there ever been a moment in your career when you almost hung it up because of something you learned or experienced while you were reporting? And can you share that with us? Um, I don't think I ever considered losing, leaving the, the beat or leaving the industry because of an area of coverage or a specific story or incident. I think it's important now more than ever to make time away from work, um, yeah. a time of peace. I think I've had a, um, a BlackBerry or a cell phone provided by my office since 2005. And boy, I remember begging the Washington Post to give me a BlackBerry. And had I known where we'd be in 2017, I would have delayed that three to five years. To because five. The, the onslaught of information now um, is so great. And the inability to process quickly what's important and what's not the the competing demands on one's attention are real see, and problematic see twitter right yeah exactly uh well you jumped to my my next question which was what do you do when you're not at npr um and 
Uh, can you tell us, you know, what keeps you busy away from this place? Yeah, I really love to read for pleasure. It, it's been hard this year to make time for that. <laughs> I really love to see movies, including documentary movies and, and just feature films. Uh, hard again this year to make time for that, but it's important. What are you reading now? Um, right now I have about a hundred books <laughs> in a stack, which I have not yet read. Um, one of the best things about NPR is that we get review copies of yeah. books before they're published. So, uh, you know, as long as we promise not to make them public or resell them, we can take them home and read them for our own pleasure. Got it. That, that is, that is a good, and, and music too, I would yes. imagine. Yes. If anyone even sure. listens to CDs anymore. Um, what, okay. So you're, you were, you began as a sports reporter and you're from Chicago. Do yes. you have a, a public sports allegiance? Well, uh, my baseball team now is the Washington Nationals. Um, my mom was born on the South side, so I'm a White Sox fan, not a Cubs fan. Okay. That's going to be very unpop- unpopular, I think, with your crowd. <laughs> well, you're sticking with your home team. That's, that's right. What about football? Uh, football, uh, again, kind of problematic growing up. I was a Bears fan, yeah. but I did graduate work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I became a Green Bay fan quickly. Really? Yes. Well, you and my son uh, would have a lot to talk about. Do you play fantasy football? I don't. Oh. Does, do you? Uh, my son and I, we have, my youngest son and I have a team together and we just lost to my oldest son this week. Oh, hey. So it was an inter-family rivalry. Dispute. Yeah, it wow. wasn't good. But my, my oldest son is a big Green Bay, Green Bay fan. Um, I guess the last question I have is, is Carl Castle's voice on your answering machine? <laughs> I wish, I wish. I've never won that contest. And you Carl. You would have to win. I mean, and, you work here. Well, Carl has retired and he's enjoying his retirement. <sighs> And so we don't want to put demands right, on Right, of him. course. Let him enjoy his retirement instead of recording. Listen, yeah. the, um, I, I'm just happy to be here, get the free books, and attend Tiny Desk concerts <laughs> when I can. Right. Have you been yeah. to one recently? Yes. Yeah, Steve Martin was here. He was awesome. really funny and really fantastic. <sighs> That's and it amazing. was super crowded. I bet. Yeah. I bet. And with his band, the High Mountain Rangers? Yes, yes, right? yes, yeah. exactly. And they're really talented. I've seen them on, on, yeah. on videos as well. Well, that's yeah. that's a great perk. That is that is the one I'm most jealous about, or Tiny Desk Concerts. Um, we could do that at Just City, but there'd just be two of, <laughs> two of us there. <laughs> <laughs> if you live closer, I'd invite you oh, every time. Well, yeah. that's nice. Thank you. And thank you so much again for hosting me and for sharing with us uh, here on The Permanent Record. Thanks, Carrie Johnson. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. That was NPR's Carrie Johnson in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Carrie and the folks at NPR for letting us come do the interview. I guess it goes without saying that you should support your local NPR station, which in Memphis is, of course, WKNO 91.1. They do great work. And I've got to say, uh, we've already had some great interviews on the permanent record, but it was a real treat to get to visit NPR News headquarters and see the newsroom and all of the people who make some of our favorite programs. It was really exciting, and I hope it did it justice. Watch for our second episode in our special series of podcasts on the media. In it, we interview Jessica Pishko of the Fair Punishment Project. Jessica is one of a new breed of reporters helping bring the focus back on local criminal justice issues from newly formed nonprofits. She has some great insight on the future of journalism. That episode's coming soon. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for the permanent record. And as always, thanks to Gil Worth and Carla Worth at the OAM Network. Visit them at theoamnetwork.com. You can stream the permanent record directly from that site and check out other great podcasts based right here in Memphis. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever you get your podcast. If you give us a rating, it really, really helps. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.